good morning. For those of you who are not from this area originally, this morning is the unofficial first day of third winter. If you're new with us, my name's Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. I don't normally preach on Sunday mornings very often. In fact, this may be the only Sunday morning service that I preach this week. So what I'm trying to say is, or this, uh, this and this year, sorry. <laughs> Unintentional joke there. So if this is your first Sunday, I would invite you to come back next week. And I do also realize that you lost an hour of sleep last night. So if any of you are dozing off, I will ascribe it to that and not the content of our message. So if you haven't already, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to be looking today at verses 1 through 22, the text of which can be found on page 826 of the Pew Bible in front of you, if you're using that. Let me, allow me to say a prayer, and then we will begin. Father in heaven, we do ask this morning that you would speak to us from your word, even as we see your kingship, your rule over all of creation. We ask indeed, as we just sang, that you would rule indeed in all of our hearts alone. And do it so through your word this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This, mor- uh, this morning, we are going to be jumping back into our sermon series in the book of Matthew. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, uh, we've been in the Ten Commandments. I took a look back. We've been in Matthew for quite a while now. We've been trekking along since August of 2020, for those of you who can remember the- that time. And we've watched Jesus from his birth through his earthly ministry. And this morning, we're going to watch as he enters into the last week of his life. The narrative of the book of Matthew drastically slows at this point. 20 chapters of the book of Matthew have taken us through 33 years of Jesus' life. And we will see that eight chapters, the final remaining eight chapters in the book of Matthew, take us through a mere eight days of Jesus' life. The story, the narrative almost in in a sense grinds to a halt it beacons to us to stop and slow down and notice the details. There's suspense and drama building. This is part of the story where we lean to the front of our seats. The pace of the story tells us something big is happening. And this morning we'll see that. Look back down to chapter 21. I want to read verses 1 through 3 as we begin our first point. The promised king has come. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem... And came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. The text tells us that Jesus and his disciples are heading towards Jerusalem. They reach Bethphage, just to the east of Jerusalem. And Jesus instructs his disciples to go into the next village ahead and to retrieve for him a donkey. And this must have been a quite interesting request from the disciples. Essentially, Jesus is saying to the disciples, go into the village in front of you and commandeer a ride for me. Now, this would be like me telling you to go up to your neighbor's house, to knock on the door, and as they open, to reach in, grab their keys off the key ring, and to grab their car. Now, I don't know about you, but the Lord needs it would probably not cut it for an excuse for me doing that. But for Jesus, who has all authority and ownership over all things, that's all that's necessary. And I want to notice here, again, as we look at the details of this, Jesus orchestrates the smallest of details. Nothing is left 
to chance. He knows the donkey will be there. He knows the village that it will be in. All has been prepared. And Jesus is showing us here that this is a first glimpse of the fact that in the eight days to come, in the eight days that he will be in and around Jerusalem, the events will not be directed by chance. They will be directed by him. Now, you and I are not accustomed to having a king. As Americans, it's kind of not our thing. But for all the lack of familiarity, we do have some concept of kingly behavior. Allow yourself for a moment to imagine. What would a king look like? What would a king be wearing? What would be a king's means of transportation? In a few short months, our British neighbors will celebrate the coronation of their new king. I don't know what King Charles will be riding in, but I can safely assume that it will not be a donkey. Not a very kingly ride. So why an, an unbroken colt? Why does Jesus choose this particular means of transportation? We'll look down to verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now we see, friends, the donkey upon which our Lord rode was no random occurrence. It was to fulfill a prophecy spoken hundreds of years before by the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Zechariah says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, friends, Israel had been waiting on a new king to arrive. They were waiting on a righteous king. And in this moment, perhaps unbeknownst to the disciples, Jesus is making a proclamation. Indeed, the time for secrecy about Jesus' kingship is over. Throughout Matthew's gospel, you, you will see, and we've seen through our study, what commentators have called Jesus' mess, messianic secret, where Jesus will interact with someone, he will do something for them, or he will teach them something, and then he will instruct them not to say anything about it. We see this with the leper in Matthew 8, verse 4, the paralytic in Matthew 9, verse 3, and even his own disciples in Matthew 16, verse 20. Over and over, Jesus instructs those around him not to reference what he has done for them, not to reference his true identity. And why? Why would he do this? Well, the answer is the time wasn't right. It wasn't time for the story to slow down yet. We weren't at the end at that point. But now it is that time, and Jesus makes an active proclamation through this lowly donkey. The secret is out. He is the coming king. His coming on a donkey, for those familiar with the Old Testament, would echo the coming of King Solomon in 1 Kings verses 1, verse 38 through 40. As Solomon is, is being ushered to the temple as the, as the new king over Israel, and what is his mode of transportation? A donkey. And why a donkey? Well, a donkey is a sign of peace. This is no war horse that Jesus rides into his kingdom. This is no forced insurrection by Jesus. He is entering the kingdom he already owns, not a kingdom that he needs to usurp. And he comes to bring peace, not conquest. And this might not have been what 
the people would have expected. It's hard to overstate what this coming of the king would have meant. Think for a moment of all the kings of Israel, each flawed, some of them providing a glimpse of hope to the people, only to let them down, coming and going. And yet Zechariah says, a coming king is coming who is righteous and full of salvation. Hundreds of years before this, the scattered remnant of Israel would return to the temple, and the temple would lie in ruins in Jerusalem. And you can imagine the people there as their temple lies in ruins, as their city has been ransacked and destroyed. They might be thinking, what is to come of our nation? What is to come of our people? What is to come of God's chosen ones? And as they look around at what little is left, Zechariah says, do not fear, do not grow weary, for a righteous king will come. Out of these ruins will come one with salvation. And this is the point of this connection in this prophecy, is that Jesus is saying to the people, I am that king. I am the king who has come. And that is why the crowds chant, Hosanna. Let's read verse 5 through 11. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Then the disciples did, went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to the son of David. This word Hosanna, perhaps you're accustomed to singing this word, perhaps at Christmas time. The word comes from a verse in Psalm 118, verses 25 to 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Hosanna, we pray, O Lord. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So think about what's happening here for a moment. These people are saying, Hosanna, save us, O God. Bless us, O God. And we know, too, that by this point, commentators tell us that this phrase, this word, Hosanna, would have been come to be associated with messianic connections. Hosanna in the highest. Praise be to God. Blessed is he who comes to the, in the name of the Lord. The king is here. Those who stand by praise Jesus, perhaps recognizing, at least in part, the reality of his kingly claim. And I wonder this morning, what of you? What is your response to Jesus' claim of kingship? How do you respond to Jesus' kingly rule over the world he created? I would argue that if blessings and praise and glory to God is not on your lips, it is perhaps likely that you have not recognized Christ as king. We must be reminded, friends, that when the king comes around, you have to respond. We have to respond when the king comes around. And there's two types of responses. The one we will see today, Hosanna, glory be to God, praise God in the highest, praise the coming son of David. 
But in a few short days, the cries of Hosanna will move to cries of crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus does not ride into Jerusalem to slay his enemies. In fact, he comes to be slain by his enemies so that those of us who are enemies can be made right with God. Hosanna or crucify him. There are no middle ground when it comes to the king. The king allows for no divided loyalties. And so I would ask this morning, what do you make of this king? What do you make of King Jesus? And so the narrative continues. The king has arrived and he enters his capital city and the crowd is stirred. What would you expect him to do next? What would be the next logical step for a king to reestablish control of his kingdom? Well, I can almost promise you that whatever you had in mind is not what Jesus actually did. So let's look as the narrative continues. Look down to verse 12. We'll see point two, the temple and the fig tree. Verse 12, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. And in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Before we begin on these next two sections, I want to uh, maybe bring up something that you may be aware of if you're familiar with your Bibles. You'll notice that the chronology that is laid out here in the book of Matthew and the chronology and the account from the Gospel of Mark are seemingly different. And perhaps you've had these two narrative events brought to your attention and highlighted as evidence that the Bible is full of contradictions and errors. So I want to speak to that this morning because you may go back and look up something about this text and I want you to rest assured, I don't believe it's the case that this is any error or any, uh, anything wrong with the Bible. It seems with a high degree of certainty that Mark's gospel arranges these, these narrative events, these two narrative events, in a chronological matter, while Matthew organizes them in a thematic matter. So while Matthew and Mark may have some difference in composition, there is no difference in context and content. And so I'd like to narrate these two events for you now. And as I'll do, I will use the, the structure from the book of Mark. And remember, we're answering the question, what will happen when the king comes to town, Jesus, after entry into the city, he dismounts his donkey and sometime in the near future is walking along the road with his disciples. 
Now, some of you know what it's like to be on a long journey. Something about a long journey that brings about hunger, that drains one's energy. And Jesus, in his true humanity, is no different. He's walking along and he is hungry. Now, of course, in those days, unlike the, tra- the trip that I took yesterday, there are no convenience stores lining the sides of the path to stop to get something to eat. He required a simpler, a more natural-er, natural-er means, more natural means. Let's use right English. And he walks along and he spots in the distance a fig tree. And this fig tree, uh, as, as Mark's gospel teaches us, his, this fig tree was not the season for figs. Now, of course, we just read what's coming next. You know this tree is about to be cursed. So it may be a little odd to you that, for Mark to tell us that it was not the season for fig trees. Why would Jesus curse a tree that didn't produce fruit when it wasn't the season for that tree to produce fruit? It's an interesting thought. Many people have brought this text in particular up as evidence and reason not to believe in Jesus. It seems flippant. Bertrand Russell, the famed British mathematician and philosopher, said of this text, this is a very curious story because it was not the right time of year for figs. And you really couldn't blame the tree For this reason, I cannot myself find that either in matter of wisdom or in matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people in history. This may seem like a flippant act at first glance. However, as often the case, the concerns about this and the concerns about the seasonality of figs is not the main point of the text. There's another emphasis that Jesus has. We could get into the details of the seasonal nature of figs and how they have two seasons and the leaves come up at different times, but I think it may be beneficial to look at something else. Maybe beneficial instead of looking at the season to simply look at the tree. This tree, while not in season, is covered in leaves, is bearing leaves. For those of you unfamiliar with fig trees, leaves signify fruit. When there are leaves on a fig tree, you would expect there to be fruit on the fig tree. You see, friends, this particular tree, although not in season, from its outward appearance, was declaring to passers-by that fruit was present. This tree had all the external of appearances of a tree that would be fruitful. And when Jesus stops to look at this particular tree, he sees all the external appearances with none of the internal fruit. Mark that away in your mind. We will come back to that. And so Jesus curses the tree. And at once, the tree begins to wither. This is interesting. This is the only time in Jesus' earthly ministry that he will use his divine power to curse. We've seen over and over him use his divine power to heal, to rescue, to cast out demons. But this time, he uses his power to curse And they leave the fig tree, Mark tells us, and they make their way to the temple. And as they enter the temple, Jesus arrives and observes the state of things and is incensed by what he sees. You see Jesus overturning the tables. This would be probably a wild scene if you were there. Coins rolling all over the floor. Chairs being ripped out from under people selling pigeons. I can imagine there are birds flying around. It's quite the scene. Now, for those of us nearly 2,000 years on from temple worship, we must ask, 
Why were these people here doing these things? Why are there money changers sitting in the temple? Why are there those selling pigeons in the temple? Well, think for a moment about the context of what is happening. The Passover celebration is about to happen, and Jews from all over would be making pilgrimage to Jerusalem to make sacrifices and to worship. And however, many of them face a very simple problem. It's a long journey. It's a hard journey. Many times they were walking tens if not hundreds of miles to make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And carrying a sacrifice with you over such a long distance was not necessarily a feasible solution. So it seems a culture had arisen in the temple that those who would travel from far away would not bring their sacrifices, but they would go to the temple and then they would make trade in the temple for their sacrifices. But what about the money exchangers? Well, for those of you familiar with the Old Testament, you'll know the temple tax had to be paid in the half shekel, not in the traditional Greek and Roman currencies. So just as if you go to another country and you have your dollar bills and that the place doesn't accept dollar bills, you have to go and exchange your currency for the local currency. Well, the only currency accepted for temple worship was the half shekel. And so now exchangers sit in the temple, exchanging Roman and Greek currency for the half shekel. And it's safe to assume from Jesus' reaction that the exchange rate was far from fair. The exchange rate highly favored the exchangers. Let's put this into perspective for a bit, maybe bring it a little closer to home. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're on a long car journey through a desert. You need to get from one side to the other. So you get in your car and you head, you head down the, the road in your car, and then a little light comes up on your dashboard about halfway through. And it's a light that's commonly on in my wife's car, fuel level low. I did get permission to make that reference. Fuel level low. And so you begin to panic. You begin to worry that you're going to run out of, of gas in the middle of the desert. And your eyes are weary from straining towards the horizon. But, but you look and you see off in the distance, several miles ahead, a gas station. And you're saved. You know that you can get fuel. So you drive to the gas station. And as you pull up, you look to the sign. And you think something must be wrong. This sign says $50 a gallon. So you walk in to the attendant and you say, sir, I I believe your sign is wrong. Surely you mean $5 a gallon. Your sign says $50 a gallon. And the attendant looks at you and says, the sign's not wrong. Do you want to get to the other side or not? What are your options? Well, you pay the exorbitant amount for the fuel or you don't make it to the other side. Now imagine you're a Jew making pilgrimage for the Passover, one of the distinct celebrations of the year, and you need a sacrifice, and you come to the temple, and you find the very sacrifice you need at an exorbitant price. What options do you have? The same options you have. You pay the the fee. You line the pockets of the exchangers, and you do what you have to do. This is what's happening in the temple. Exorbitant fees. Jesus overturns these tables. He drives out the peddlers. 
And he says, you need these sacrifices. You need these exchanges, perhaps. But you won't turn my father's house into a den of robbers. And he casts them out. This is a scathing indictment. This phrase, a den of robbers. For those who would have been insulted, they would have known this phrase, den of robbers, comes from the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is condemning the people for their form of worship. And he says this, Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. So it seems people were saying when they would come to the temple in Jeremiah's day, this is the temple. God is here. This is the temple. And that is what they would put their trust in. Jeremiah says, don't put your trust in these deceptive words. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in my house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. He says, go now to, the pl to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all of these things, declares the Lord, when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. I will cast you out of my sight, as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. In this condemnation of those in the temple, Jesus is saying, the cycle has once again continued. Shiloh, the place of worship, destroyed. The temple in Jeremiah's day, destroyed. And the temple during Jesus' day will soon be destroyed as well, some short 70 years later. All of these temples did not fulfill that which the purpose of which they were built so Jesus walks in and says, you have turned my father's house into a den of robbers. But yet, there is another temple. It is a temple that will be destroyed as well. And it will be destroyed a mere eight days from the events of which we are reading about this morning. This is the temple of which Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And this is the good news that Jesus... Far from preventing worshipers from coming to the place that God dwells, would become in his incarnation the dwelling place of God among man. The peddlers of the temple thought that they were okay to worship because they were where they were. And Jesus says, no, 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 I will drive you out because you've missed the whole purpose for which the temple was created. This temple is supposed to be a house of prayer. And if you're familiar with Mark's account, Mark adds that this temple is to be a house of prayer for the nations. Isaiah prophesied of a day, he said, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord and to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, 
Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not pervane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. And for my house shall be called a house of prayer. For who? For all peoples or for the nations. Lord God, who gathers the outcast of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Jesus oftentimes and God oftentimes teaches us similar things in different ways. For example, you'll you'll often hear us here say that the preaching of the gospel through the sermon preaches to your ears while the Lord's Supper proclaims the gospel to your eyes. Same message, different way. I believe Jesus is doing something similar here with the fig tree. I believe Jesus is using the fig tree to teach us a lesson, namely the same lesson he's teaching those in the temple, that there is judgment coming if there is no real fruit, even if all the external signs are there. All that is unfruitful will be cursed. One commentator says it succinctly. The point was that the tree by its leaves announced that it was bearing fruit when in fact it was not. The cursing of the tree becomes a model that pronounces judgment on religious hypocrites, people who make a show of piety but who bear no genuine fruit of piety. Going back to the fig tree, lest we think Jesus is a capricious megalomaniac, lest we think of him as Zeus ready to strike us with a curse, look down again to what he says to his disciples. He says to them when they ask, why did this happen? He says to them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even say to this mountain, be taken up and be thrown into the sea, and it will happen. The temple is cleared. Jesus is not allowing for hypocritical worship. He drives them out. And he goes and shows us something else in the temple. He shows us what the temple is actually supposed to be there for. See who Jesus goes to. The rich, the powerful, the rulers. Does he go and set up a throne for himself? No, who does Jesus go to in the temple? And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful works that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Jesus goes to the least of these. He goes to the outcast. The same outcast that God says through the prophet Isaiah that he will bring in. Jesus goes to those people. You'll see here that there are folks on the fringes of the temple worship. Those who have no means by which to get a sacrifice from these peddlers. Those who have nothing to offer, Jesus goes to them and he worships and he, and he heals them, excuse me. Jesus is setting up a contrast here. He's saying hypocritical worship is worship that peddles the word of God and peddles the things of God 
for earthly profit. True worship is worship that goes to the least of these, to the outcast, and brings healing. Again, throughout the book of Matthew, we've seen Jesus use his miraculous power to heal, to restore, to revive. And again, he does that in this interaction in the temple. Jesus goes out the next morning. He's returning to the city. And he, or he's returning from Bethphage to the city. And they walk past the same fig tree that had been cursed. And the disciples, who seemingly had saw the curse cause the tree start to wither day one, day two, when they walk back by, they see the tree withering once again. And they ask Jesus, Why did, how did the fig tree wither at once? You may remember a similar message that Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 17 about the faith of a mustard seed. How do we know if we have authentic faith or hypocritical faith? I believe those whom Jesus met in the temple give us a good picture. The blind, the lame, the outcast, and even the children. They come to Jesus and they say, Hosanna, save us, bless us, Messiah, son of David. And that, friends, is the prayer of faith. It is a faith that believes. It is a faith that is attached to the God-man, Jesus Christ. It is that faith that can produce miraculous things far outweighing the curse of the fig tree. I love Mark's account of this. The disciples ask Jesus, how did the fig tree begin to wither so quickly? And Jesus' first words to them is, have faith in God. It's odd and, and Peter is the one that speaks up, as, as is often the case. You can imagine from the disciples what all they've seen Jesus do in his time on earth. And they're still surprised by his miraculous power. Have faith in God. This passage and this narrative, these two narratives together of the temple and the fig tree, are designed to show us overlapping themes. One is that no task that is in harmony with God's will is impossible for those who believe and pray. If we have faith in God, if we have cast ourselves at his feet, if the cry of Hosanna has been on our lips, if we have begged him to conform our wills to his, then the prayer of faith will be one that is always received. John Calvin said of this text, he said, Christ does not give a loose rein to the wishes of men. This might be often the way you've heard this text referenced, that if you just believe enough, whatever you pray, you will get. Name it. Simply name it in prayer. Claim it in prayer, and it will be yours. Calvin says, Christ does not give a loose rein to the wishes of men that they should desire anything at their pleasure. When he places prayer after the rule of faith, for in, the way, in this way the Spirit must of necessity hold our affections bridle by the word of God and bring them into obedience. Christ demands a firm and undoubting confidence of obtaining an answer. And whence does the human mind obtain that confidence? Where can we find that confidence, Calvin says? But from the very word of God. 
we now see that Christ promises nothing to his disciples unless they keep themselves within the limit of his good pleasure. And as Christ stands beside the withered tree, his disciples are reminded of another theme, similar to the theme taught about in the temple, that no external acts can substitute for faith-filled prayer and authentic faith. And the same is true for us. You will remember another event in your scriptures where leaves were used to cover up fruitlessness. Think back to Genesis 3 in the fall. What is the first inclination of our first parents when they sin? They sew leaves together to cover themselves. No amount of leaves will be able to cover up your sins before God. No amount of hiding, no amount of church attendance, no amount of good works, nothing will be able to cover up your lack of fruit in the last day. And how often do we follow in the footsteps of our first parents in an attempt to hide the fact that our faith is hypocritical? Unless you be mistaken, when we say, unless you bear fruit, you will not inherit the kingdom. We don't mean unless you do good works, those, those, those will come. The true fruit is the fruit that we see missing in the temple and that Jesus speaks of, namely the fruit of true authentic faith and faith-filled prayer. The internal must match the external. All the glories of the temple may be present. We may lift our hands in worship. Our building may be full. Our ministry may have seeming success. And yet, all of that may be present. And true faith may be absent. May God cause it not to be so between us. So friends, as we conclude, we must remember where we began. Where did we begin the text this morning? By observing that the text has begun to slow down. The narrative has slowed. We can notice the details. And I wonder this morning if it would not be profitable for us as well to slow down and to examine. Is there the fruit of faith in our lives or are there merely hypocritical external appearances? We're reminded that the story of Christ coming into his earthly kingdom reminds us that while he does come as sovereign king, he comes with a message of peace for Jerusalem, the peace of a lowly donkey. And the same is true for us. Just as Jesus came to bring peace to Israel, he comes to bring peace to us as the prince of peace. And the peace that comes is the peace that comes through faith. So friends, I would invite you, if you've not looked to the king, if you've not submitted to him, know that he does not come in judgment for those who believe. For those who believe, he comes with grace and forgiveness and joy and peace. Cast yourself upon him today by faith. Lay yourself down at his feet and cry, Hosanna, save me, bless me, praise God, the coming king. Turn from your sin this morning 
and have no fear of judgment. You may say, Luke, the externals in my life, you don't know the externals of my life. Didn't matter for the lame. Didn't matter for the blind. They didn't have a lot to add to the temple worship. But that didn't stop Jesus from moving towards them. For those in Christ, let us pray earnestly that God might prune from us all manners of hypocrisy. May he prune from us all mere external appearances and bring forth true fruit, the fruit of faith. Perhaps this morning you've been walking with the Lord for quite a while. You've known God, you've turned from him, but you've become accustomed to the routine of external appearance. God does not desire external appearance alone. He desires true faith. A a house of prayer for all the nations. What would it look like for our church if we were so focused on the internal realities of faith and not the mere externals? What would it look like for our church if we cast out any semblance of worshiping, worshiping for profit? What would it look like to the world if we had this authentic faith? I think it would look like a group of temples, God's temple, where God dwells, a community where God dwells within people. I think it would be a beckoning light to the nations, that the nations would come here to this place to see our worship, and those far from God would be brought near. That is, the, that is the point of the temple. That is the point of our worship. So let us, with true faith, ask of God that he would change us, that he would remove this hypocrisy, and we can have confidence knowing that that prayer that we pray in true faith with no doubting, God is sure to answer. Let's pray.